0: Well, good evening, church. It's good to see you on this Friday evening. If you'd turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, it'll be in the 15th chapter. Mark chapter 15. This evening we're going to go through about 12 or 13 verses in Mark chapter 15. Beginning in verse 24. So, hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 15. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lava saktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Hear the word of the Lord. Can you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, tonight enlarge our hearts, warm our affections, open our lips, supply words that proclaim Love lusters at Calvary. Their grace removes our burdens and heaps them on your son. Made a transgressor, a curse, and a sin for us. There the sword of your justice smote the man, your fellow. There your infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. There, infinite punishment was due and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy, cast off that we might be brought in, trotted down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as friends, surrendered to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best, stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed, a thirst that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made ashamed that we might inherit glory, entered darkness that we might have eternal light. Our Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from our eyes, groaned that we might have endless song, endured all pain that we might have unfading health, or a thorny crown that we might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that we might uplift ours, experienced reproach that we might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that we might gaze on unclouded brightness." expired, that we might forever live. O Father, who spared not your only Son, that you might spare us all this transfer, your love designed and accomplished, help us to adore you by our lips and lives, that every breath of ours might be ecstatic praise. Our every step buoyant with delight as we see Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, Sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal opened. Go forth, O conquering God, and show us the cross, mighty subdue, comfort, and save. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Our passage tonight begins with these words, and they crucified him. These words from Mark 15 are not good words on their own. In fact, they're tragic words that represent the culmination of some of the most upsetting moments in Scripture. Leading up to these words, and they crucified him, is Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, the sham trial before the Jewish authorities, the denials of Peter, scourgings, beatings, and a painful procession up Golgotha. Three years of his ministry led to this point. Three years of healing, three years of teaching, three years of feeding the hungry, loving the unlovable, and being Emmanuel, God with us, and they crucified him. In the brevity that's characteristic of the gospel of Mark, we're thrust before the cross with these few words to see incarnate God hanging with nails through his hands and his feet. And so we ask, why is this Good Friday? Continuing on, it says, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So after he is crucified, insult is added to injury when they divided garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Like sick gawkers at some kind of horrific accident being covered by national news, the soldiers grab for something to take as a token or just as likely they saw an opportunity to get something for free. Now, the 22nd Psalm anticipated this cruel feeding frenzy. Hundreds of years prior to the event, David wrote the words, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus, knowing these words as not only a student of the scriptures in his humanity, but the inspirer of these words in his divinity, now looked down on their fulfillment. Naked on the cross, he watched those who mocked him add careless insult to wretched injury. Naked, he watched what he anticipated, time immemorial while clothed in glory with the Father. It was prophesied to happen, but their selfish scramble for his garments was not good continuing it says and it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the jews and with him they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left now everything that we see at the crucifixion was intended to demoralize and specifically to denigrate jesus the sign the king of the Jews was tacked to the cross to prove that he was a blasphemer. The charges brought against him were that he had said that he was equal with God by saying that he was to be the king. The common thieves on either side of him, the authorities lumped together with him and his zealous religiosity in their view as simply one more problem that they had to deal with. They had to deal with thieves, and now they had to deal with this man and the trouble that he was starting. Of course, we know that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Moreover, he was and he is king of kings. Their charge of blasphemy was, ironically, blasphemous itself. And of course, Jesus' humiliation, this demoralization, This denigration didn't start only when he was executed with sinners on his right and his left. His humiliation started when he was born into a world thick with sinners. Jesus' life began in a manger with two sinners. Jesus' life ended on Calvary with two sinners. This was why he was sent into the world. To save sinners. But Jesus' humiliating death, what we read about this evening, like his humble life, was not good by the standards of this world. Mark continues, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so now at this moment, in stark contrast to the festival atmosphere that we saw A week ago, at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, Jesus has now become the object of a new kind of spectacle, a new kind of focus, no longer riding in as a king, but now on a cross. No longer is he the object of pride and the object of hope for those who see and cry out for him. Now, he is, in their minds, the object of scorn. With the same fervor that they shouted, Hosanna, they now shout insults at him. And as we read here, passersby by shook their heads in shame. For crucifixion was indeed a shameful death. There's many, many ways to kill someone. There's many ways to take care of somebody who is a thorn in the side of the Jewish authorities. Many ways to take care of someone who is a problem to the Roman authorities. Crucifixion was intended to put someone and what they represented on display. One more irony in this situation is that now the cross is what we have been singing about. The cross is indeed something that we display. The cross is something that we focus on, but we have taken, because of Christ, because of his church, we have taken the derision and the shame of that symbolism and that imagery, and if we have turned it into something triumphant. But in that day, it was only a source of shame. Onlurkers, they brazenly challenged him using his own words. For he had promised that he was greater than the temple itself. So they said, you thought you could destroy the temple and rebuild it. Surely you can save yourself not knowing, of course, that Jesus, in talking of the temple, was talking about his own body. The priests, the constant antagonists that they were, thought they had quelled any momentum of this new movement that Christ had started. For salvation surely could not be accomplished by one who needed saving himself. Little did they know that the death was the the mechanism by which the Trinity had promised in time past that would be used to save countless multitudes. And even the dying thieves mocked him. We don't have the resolution and the one thief that does change his his mind, and his perspective, who is changed by Christ in the Gospel of Mark. But what is meant to be communicated here is that there's something going on in the minds of those thieves because there is something perversely cathartic about hurting others when you yourself are hurting. All of these things, the insults from the passersby, from the onlookers, from the priests, from the thieves, none of this was good. It ought to pain us to think of Christ enduring insults on top of his excruciating injuries. It ought to pain us to think of the emotional and the spiritual darkness of anyone ruthless enough to mock a dying Jesus. In fact, the very head-shaking that Mark records and the abuses at the foot of the cross that Mark records exemplify the coming judgment of those who engaged in insulting Jesus. Because centuries prior, through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised that one day everyone who passes by Israel is horrified and shakes his head. And because of this rejection of him, of God, of his covenant, of his Messiah, he goes on to say that like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy, and I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. Christ, as the culmination, the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, the true and better Israel Being mocked by those who were ethnically Israelites, who had the law, who had the prophets, they were incurring this disaster prophesied by Jeremiah. It all paints a picture that is not good. The situation that's not good, it was a portent of of their own judgment and condemnation, but a portent of further disaster to come upon Israel. Mark continues. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So, the second time indicator that we get in this passage sets the scene for the cosmic upheaval that was occurring because of the crucifixion. Earlier, Mark recorded that Christ was crucified at the third hour, or mid morning, about nine o'clock. Now, we have the sixth hour. Roughly noon until the afternoon, the the ninth hour, there was a darkness that came over the entire land. Darkness is not good. Any culture can tell you this, but much more close to us, any child can tell us this. Any child understands the vulnerability and the fear that comes over someone when there's darkness particularly when there's darkness that is not expected or anticipated. It's not just children that understand this situation. If you were out in a building, whether it be a shopping mall or a stadium or even this building, if the power were to suddenly go out and the building were to go dark, you would have all the people or most of the people gasp or maybe even stifle a shout at the unexpected darkness. If a storm quickly comes in, people will naturally walk worriedly to a window and look up at the darkening sky, wondering what is happening. Darkness is naturally frightening. And th- this darkness that we read about that settled from the 6th to the, the, the ninth hour, from noon till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, was not like losing electricity, and it was not like a passing thunderstorm. It was an expansive Darkness that soaked Jerusalem in black in the middle of the day. It would have triggered that childlike vulnerability and fear across the entire city. As real as it was, and as dark as it truly was, it symbolized and it pictured that actual torquing of creation that accompanied the incarnate God writhing in agony on the cross. Other gospels record Darkness, earthquakes, the dead rising. In sin, because of sin, the sin that had beset the world for millennia prior to this moment, the order and the state of the world was not good. And you even see creation responding and reacting to the dire nature of the situation as there is darkness that settles on the land. But in that moment, the shadow of the cross shone a great light upon the need for redemption. Redemption for souls and redemption for the world. At the ninth hour, it says, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So, what Jesus is doing here, we have it in Aramaic, but we also have it translated for us into English. Jesus is quoting the 22nd Psalm. Jesus fully acknowledges that his situation is not good. And once again, as we've talked about before, the 22nd psalm is a psalm of lament. David, the, the human author of the 22nd psalm, is crying out for deliverance because of the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of those who are persecuting him. He petitions in crying out to God the only one he knows his help comes from, the holy covenant God of Israel. Still. Still. Although he calls with confidence, what he feels in that moment of vulnerability is being forsaken. David felt when he wrote it, and Christ says when he screams it from the cross, the weight of sin and the creeping death that accompanies the sinful state of mankind. And so as David did centuries prior, Jesus from the cross feels the weight of sin. He feels the creeping death that accompanies the sinful state of mankind. The difference is that David, the original author of Psalm 22, like you and like me, actually deserves that death. They deserve that weight of sin. We deserve that weight of sin, that crushing burden that should be on our shoulders when we are standing in a state where we are unrepentant before our holy God. But Jesus on the cross, at any other point in his life, deserved no such thing. Perfect obedience to the law. Perfect harmonious relationship with the Father. Jesus, in perfect glory and in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past, covenanted to enter into his creation and take the place of his people, paying the price for their sin. And so Jesus' cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, cannot be misunderstood as some kind of disunion of the triune God. Jesus' cry is not the echo of David's psalm. It is the original voice that David and the assembly of God's people throughout time repeat in their moments of despair. Jesus' voice is the original voice. David's psalm and our prayers are the echoes. They are the twisted derivation of what was understood and communicated by a holy God to his people. Again, our feeling of forsaken by God is brought on by our sin. When we feel like our prayers are not heard, when we feel like our situation is too much for us to bear, when we feel like our suffering is unjust and we cry out for that feeling, in some way, shape, or form, whether it be our sin or the sin that we participate in by being part of a fallen world, is brought on by us and by our race. But Christ's feeling of being forsaken is, and hear this, church, brought on by our sin as well. We deserve what we feel. He feels what we deserve. So we can't misunderstand Jesus' words, what he meant and what they meant for his relationship with the Father. There was no break in the Trinity. There was no disunion between Father and Son and Spirit on the cross. Misunderstanding Jesus' words is what the soldiers, unfamiliar perhaps with Jesus' Semitic tongue, did when they assumed he was praying to Elijah. Standing there, prodding the face of the Messiah with an anesthetic, They watched and they waited, but they had misheard Jesus. They misunderstood Jesus. At the pinnacle of history, these soldiers were watching and waiting for the wrong thing. Church, it's never good to mishear Jesus. And following this, Mark records that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathe his last. Once more, the concise nature and the brevity of the gospel of Mark communicates something that could be written across countless volumes. It could be illustrated from multiple angles. It could be explained in countless facets, but here it is said in a scant seven or eight words, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The ministry of Of Christ had been fixed on this precise moment. The entirety of redemptive history, ever since that sin in the garden, had been moving towards and working together for this specific instant. But in these words, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, we are left on a precipice. Jesus is dead. Just like that. A shout and then silence. A guttural crescendo from Emmanuel, God with us, followed by. In the book of Exodus, Moses recorded these words. You shall make a veil of blue and purple, scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful designer. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four bases of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and you shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place and the holy of holies. The very next words... That Mark records after Jesus lets out a loud cry and breathes his last are these, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We read that at the death of Jesus Christ, the ornate veil that was in the temple was rent asunder. Of all the details and all of the circumstances that could be recorded immediately following the blunt verse, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You might ask, why do we call it Good Friday? Your children or your family or your neighbor might ask you why we refer to a day in which we remember so much bad is good. Jesus was crucified. Jesus' belongings were stolen. Jesus was blasphemed and treated as a common criminal. Jesus was mocked. Jesus' ordeal led to a darkness overtaking the land. Jesus cried out from the weight of our sin, of your sin, of my sin. And those around him did not understand. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. But the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As Moses wrote thousands of years prior, the veil shall separate for you the holy place and the holy of holies. This curtain which was existing in the tabernacle and then in the temple and then in in the second temple. This curtain was an inhibitor. It was a wall. It was a physical reminder of mankind's unholiness, a physical reminder for all who drew near, even drew to the outer courts and had some sort of conception of what was inside the magnificent building. There was something there separating them from a holy God, representing their sin Representing the dividing wall of the transgressions. It tangibly kept people from the presence of God represented in the Holy of Holies. And at Jesus' death, that veil was torn down. That church was good. It is good. It's dramatic and emotional and symbolic and climactic and all of those things. But first and foremost, it is good because we now have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And the author of Hebrews continues by saying that since we have a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Church, these words from the epistle to the Hebrews unpack and display in great beauty with unparalleled devotional fervor, the goodness of Good Friday. It is good, though, only if you have and hold fast the confession of the hope of the apostles, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the magnificent message of the gospel preached by Jesus himself, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Don't mishear this. Like those soldiers who were standing next to Jesus and didn't even understand that he was calling out to Yahweh God, don't mishear this. If you do not have and hold to this confession, this hope, this faith, this gospel, today is a good day to do it. Because it, too, a good Friday is a good day, the day of salvation. We are called today, if we don't know already, to cease striving to access God and earn his favor on our own terms. Stop listening to the world. Stop listening to your heart and start listening to the call of the Holy Spirit of Christ, surrendering your burden to the strong hands of Jesus, knowing that he is faithful and that he will guide you into the presence of his glorious grace. If you have repented, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if he is Lord of your life, you know that today is good. With all of the difficult imagery that we must go through as we turn to the gospels, as we sing the songs that we sing, as we tell the stories to our children of the pain and the agony, and the grief, and the bruised and bloodied body of the only innocent man to ever walk this earth, we know that today is good. In his goodness, and in his kindness, Jesus left us with these things. He left us with his word. He leaves us with his spirit. And he left us with this simple supper, This simple meal that we're about to enjoy at once brings us back to the night of his crucifixion. And even before that, to the day before, with the night he was betrayed. And it allows us to experience his presence by faith. Not presence that exists within a transformed bread and wine. Not even a presence that is above, beyond, and underneath those elements. But a presence of Christ in faith, as we receive them in faith, in obedience. And as we hold these tangible elements, then we have heard the word preached, we will taste momentarily tangible reminders of his presence. And they will fix us and fix our gaze on a future meal that we will enjoy with our risen Savior. So, This meal that we're about to enjoy is open to all who have repented and have put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we desire to eat this meal with you, but tonight it's not for you. But trust me when I say to you that it would be good, very, very good, to eat this meal with you shortly as a celebration of a newly found grace. And so in a moment, and John is going to come up and he's going to lead us in a song. And David and Joe are going to come up and administer the elements. So if you'd come up and receive them and they'll go back to your seat and we'll then participate in the Lord's Supper together.